Welcome everyone. Uh, I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center at the University of Oregon. Welcome to uh, the final work in progress talk for winter term 2022. And as you can see, it is the first of our work in progress talks that we have done in two years uh, with actual humans in our conference room. We're doing it uh, hybrid style, um, but it's great to be back in the actual room. Um, work in progress talks are presentations given by UO faculty and graduate students who are current research fellows at the Oregon Humanities Center about their research projects. If those of you who are at home have questions at the end of the talk, please use the chat feature of Zoom. I will moderate and ask the questions that come in uh, through uh, the chat feature. Uh, you'll also um, be able to have closed captioning if you want it. You just activate captions using the live transcript option. The University of Oregon is located on Kalapuya Ilahi, the traditional indigenous homeland of the Kalapuya people. Following treaties between 1851 and 1855, Kalapuya people were dispossessed of their indigenous homeland by the United States government and forcibly removed to the coast reservation in Western Oregon. Today, Kalapuya descendants are primarily citizens of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde and the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians, and they continue to make important contributions to their communities, to the UO, to the world, and to this place we now call Oregon. It's my pleasure now to introduce our speaker for today, Sheila Bora Hachavasalu, a PhD candidate in Romance Languages and a 2021-2022 OHC dissertation fellow. Sheila earned her BA in French in 2013 and her MA in Romance Languages in 2015, both at the University of Oregon. Her research interests include Indian diaspora and migration, creolization, Indian Ocean and Caribbean literature, global South feminism, the intersections of Indian and African diasporic subjectivities, neoliberalism and Marxism. Her peer review article, Douce colonization, is that right? Uh, colonization. Okay. Uh, in uh, Marguerite Duras La Vice, Vice Council, 1966, and Natasha Apana's Tropique de la Violence was published in the French Review in December 2020. Sheila will be speaking with us today about her dissertation and process titled Reorienting the Utopian Island Tropes toponymy and transgression in 20th and 21st century Caribbean and Indian Ocean fictions. Welcome, Sheila. Join me, everybody, in welcoming Sheila. OK, um, thank you so much for the introduction. Um, thank you to the Oregon Humanities Center for this wonderful opportunity. I really feel like just the space of physically being here for the term was incredibly helpful for my dissertation. Um, and I was so happy and grateful to have received the fellowship um, and for all the work that the Oregon Humanities Center does. Also, thank you to my committee members, um, especially to Fabian Moore, who is my advisor um, and who reads with such meticulous detail all of my work and the primary text that I work on. Um, so I really appreciate the feedback and the detail and just the attention to all of the little things that I often miss in my own, my own writing and my texts that I read. 
Um, so I want to let me share my screen today and I let me know I have this mask on so I'm hoping I'm clear. Um, this is the first time I've done a hybrid mask sort of zoom thing so hopefully it works out and I'm going to share with you. Let's see here. Oh, no, that's not it. It's working? Okay, great. Sorry, I just can't see it on here. And it's in presenter mode? Okay, excellent. Okay, so my dissertation is called Reorienting the Utopian Island. Um, sorry, let me just see if I can. Okay, there we go. Reorienting the Utopian Island. And I have a few images here. The cityscape is Port-Louis, which is the capital city of Mauritius. And this view could be what one might see from Ananda Devi's Eve de Cédé Contre. So she talks a lot about how there's this neighborhood called Troumaron, which is a fictitious neighborhood, but from which you can see the cityscape, but which is full of housing projects and trash and poverty, um, among other things. So it's like the slum that exists right beside the sort of paradise um, utopic island scape. Um, on the other picture, there's a picture of a migrant camp that's in Mayotte, which is another Indian Ocean island and which is experiencing and has been experiencing one of the worst migrant crises in the world, but one that is really not televised, that's not in the news very often. Um, so the stories of these migrants who often drown or returned to um, their, the places that they're escaping often escapes, escapes our attention. And that's another story that's in the Indian Ocean, right? Aside from this sort of island fantasy world that, that one constructs around the island space. So I can't see here. It's actually showing us, but take a look at what you're seeing. That's what they're seeing. Okay, sorry, this is, It's just not showing up on my computer. Okay, let me try that again. It's a little strange with the um, doing both sharing. I'm wondering, since there's no one here, could I disconnect this one and try to skip screen sharing so it might work better on my computer? Okay. So I can see it now. And can you see it as well? Perfect. Okay. So the full title is Reorienting the Utopian Island, Tropes, Toponymy, and Transgression in 20th and 21st Century Caribbean and Indian Ocean Fictions. So I examine the novels, plays, and screenplays of six writers, Natasha Apana, Marise Grandier, Ananda Devi, Marguerite Duras, Barden Piamutu, um, and Mayra Santos Febres, um, which take place in the Indian Ocean and Caribbean. These writers craft narratives that unravel the tropes of the Creole Utopian Island, post-colonial multicultural success, and they privilege the stories of historically marginalized groups. So thinking about the island and the archipelago, I'm using various perspectives. Um, among the most important are Besson, 
thinking about creolization, anti-unité, relation and difference, um, the way that he uses rhizomatic identity. And then, of course, the L'Eloge de la Créolité, which is an homage to literary production and solidarity in the monde créole, including the archipelagos of the Indian Ocean and Caribbean. Now, there's a lot of criticism about L'Eloge and the idea of Créolité as sort of a state versus creolization as process. And although I agree with Françoise Lyonnais that the Eloge fails to sort of nuance the difference in identity in the Indian Ocean versus the Caribbean, because there's a lot of difference that's very important. It is the first place that I read this idea of the Solidarité Creole among these two regions and sort of the way that these archipelagos have, have all of these commonalities. And so for me, that was kind of the guiding, the guiding work that sort of helped me establish my corpus in the first place. Um, I'm thinking also about the repeating island, um, which is Benitez Rojo, the colonial, coloniality of diaspora, and then specifically the poet Paul Torabuli, and he is Mauritian, and he coins this idea of coolitude, which he's borrowing from Césaire's Negritude. And so thinking about the Indian Ocean experience of creolité or creolization is fundamentally different. The meaning of the ocean itself can be quite different. The crossing from India to Mauritius was not the same crossing as the transatlantic crossing. And so sometimes the ocean itself has a different signification for coolies um, than it might for slave, the descendants of slaves. The idea of the ocean as the Kalapani, which means the dark water, which would actually remove a Hindu's caste, could on the one hand be extremely frightening, but could also be very liberating for lower caste Hindus who in some ways were able to restart, reestablish communities, reestablish identity without the baggage of that long history of the Hindu caste system in these new places. This is not to negate the trauma of indentured labor. Um, that voyage, whether it was to the Caribbean or to the Indian Ocean Islands was also traumatic. It also involved a lot of misery and suffering, but this fundamental difference between the idea of working, even if it were for really low wages, these communities were able to establish um, communities and bring their families and eventually buy, buy freedom from this indentured labor in a way that obviously the descendants of slaves were not able to. Um, and so some of that, some of those, some of the stratification we see in, in Creole societies continues to reflect the difference in those sort of those di diasporic movements. So let's see here. Okay, sorry, my computer's um, being a little bit slow to listen to my commands. So let me go back here. Okay, so another way to think about the utopian island and one way of framing it is this quote by Françoise Lyonnais. And so she's talking about how the Ile Maurice specifically, how Maurice is talked about as a tropical island paradise, welcoming to tourists, the rainbow nation, cosmopolitan country where diverse cultures mix with respect and um, multicultural, multi-denominational republic where harmony reigns. And so this is the brand's image, even if the social reality doesn't actually match it. And the next slide I wanna show you these are images that are actually from a second year French textbook that I use. It's not a bad one. It's not a horrible textbook. But this idea of the island as the space of paradise and fun and tropical vacation, it's not something that's 
theoretical or not present in, in our day-to-day -day conception of island spaces. This is really pervasive. Um, and when in this textbook, there's many different Francophone regions, including Quebec and France. And when you talk about Europe, there's always museums um, and a whole history of so-called culture. Um, when we get to the Indian Ocean, the entire chapter is based on extreme sports um, and s'évader, s'amuser, so enjoyment, right? How to um, enjoy oneself in these in these spaces. And just looking at the images, you have a, a white windsurfer. Um, you have some, I, I suppose, traditional dancing um, and this, this blue water. And then this quote that says, la réunion, il intense, right? And so when I teach this lesson, I, I, I don't do this part. <laughs> um, I change the, the reading, but I just wanted to show you this to kind of illustrate how alive and well these, these stereotypes are. And so even this, this quote, um, islands have always made us dream. They give the visitor a sense of freedom. It is because there are no main, is it because there are no mainlands attached? Um, is it for this reason that we love extreme sports? So it kind of goes on. And I talk with my students about this, about why they think maybe in this chapter, when there are so many, there's so much cultural production in the Indian Ocean that, that, that the chapter could center on. So why do they think that sports and pastimes becomes the theme that goes with this region? And it's usually, usually leads to a, a pretty good discussion. So my dissertation, yes, is about literature. And yes, I talk about theoretical ideas, but it's grounded in a reality that I think is important um, and very present when we talk about island spaces today. Because if it's not the utopian island, then we're talking about something more dystopic, sort of the other side of the postcard. The postcard for tourists is a trope that I mention and play with a lot in my dissertation. And so instead, in these spaces, often what we're seeing is economic and racial inequality that sort of contradicts this idea of the post-colonial economic miracle, something that we see in Mauritius, something that we see in India as well. Although not an island space, I'm thinking of India as sort of an imaginary homeland that, that ends up being in the dissertation, even if the physical geography isn't. Um, a lot of gendered violence. And then climate crisis, which is not something that I started this dissertation thinking a lot about. And in some ways, I wish that it were more present in my writing. Because just in the space of the eight years, well, I didn't start this eight years ago, but in, in the space of graduate school, the level of climate crisis has sort of multiplied in a way that I think really has impacted us all. Even though it was present before, it seems more present. Um, so thinking about the island space as the most vulnerable to climate change, literally the existence of islands is, is at risk. Um, but then also balancing with that, that with this idea, and this I'm getting from Amembe, that the climate crisis is so pervasive and this existential threat that he calls it the devenir africain du monde. So it's a, a way in which the entire world, privileged spaces as well, become vulnerable in a way that perhaps before it had been the, the third world or the global south, which of course is still more vulnerable, um, but it also makes us all have to act. And so the climate crisis in that has become part of um, part of my chapter three in a way that I had not planned originally. And I think if I were to start this project again or continue it after, I, I would probably insist on that aspect more than I had originally thought. And so just to explain a little bit about the title, um, aside from a perhaps misguided love of alliteration, I, um, I chose these words 
for, for specific reasons, uh, tropes recalling the island paradise, but also Aravamudan's tropicopolitans and tropological. So thinking about the way that he constructs his analysis of tropes um, in, in his work. Also, toponymy is just a way to talk about names, again, that had a T, but I think a lot about how names reproduce and replicate. So there's the remembering of the diasporic homeland. There's the colonial claiming of, of geographic spaces, the often feminized geographic space with like the claiming of a name. And then this move to rename back to what might be authentic, which becomes really problematic as well, because in a place like India, what language was authentic? I mean, you're going back to the Hindu name in some places, or sorry, the Hindi name in some places, or the, the name in, um, in so many of the other, other languages used on the, on the subcontinent. So that becomes a tricky, a tricky process of what are we reclaiming? And is that going back to a sort of Hindu nationalist identity versus some other kind of identity or a pluralistic identity? Um, and then the idea of names and what is real. So looking at Duras and her use of names um, is really interesting because she talks about a Calcutta that's not really a Calcutta. She, she evokes a colonial Indochina in her vis consul, right? It has very little to do with the actual geography of India or she'll collapse different cities onto each other. Um, so the Calcutta is actually Simla or something like that. Um, and so thinking about her playing with it and thinking about Duras as, Duras on one hand as this profoundly anti-colonial writer, but also someone who, as a white woman of French descent, living in the colonies also occupied a, a sort of different place. So, so her relationship to, to anti-colonialism becomes complex as well. And when she's playing with geography, like what, what, is, what is her right? And how is her playing with geography in some ways, perhaps trying to claim an ownership of a space that maybe she shouldn't be claiming ownership of. Um, so those are questions I look at with her. And then transgression, I'm thinking about embodied and effective strategies of destabilization um, to dominant systems of knowledge and power. I'm really trying to avoid the word resistance um, due to, to a lot of commentary by my committee during my prospectus. And, and I do want to avoid th this idea of binary resistance or the idea that if there's always resistance, then it sort of justifies all of the oppression that happens. So I'm trying to be careful with that word while also just not replacing it with different, less, more vague terminology, because sometimes that, that seems to be what I've done. So, so I'm looking broadly at this idea of transgression in, in various forms that, that are different in each chapter. So I'll go through these quickly. Chapter one is really all about, um, all about time. Yes, so chapter one is all about time. I'm looking at a literary non-genealogy, um, still thinking of some kind of neologism that might work there, but thinking of these women writers as forming a non-normative literary genealogy that chronicles sort of the sensorial and the embodied experiences of diaspora. So it's not chronological, there's no real, the, the spaces they're from, they have a logic, but it's not the logic that we usually use to define how, to, how we categorize regions of the world. Duras is certainly not writing from the islands, but I'm thinking of her Indian Ocean as an Indian Ocean writer when she's talking about um, her 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 works that look at India. And also thinking about this idea of queer desire that unsettles patrilineal norms of diaspora. 
And then two is spatial. So if the first chapter is about time, the second chapter is about space. And this is where I look more closely at names and naming. Um, and there's a lot of this in, in my works. There's various forms of Benares, which is this holy city in India. Um, there's some great renaming in Apana. And so this is looking at how names replicate and deploy sort of these processes that are central to colonization, migration, and diaspora. And then three is about reappropriating, taking back the sites that once were central to capitalist production in the colonies. So garment factories, sugar plantations, and then how these sites have been reappropriated by the current inhabitants of places in which these industries collapse, collapsed and left um, really difficult conditions of unemployment and poverty. And here I'm thinking a lot about Mbembe and brutalism and looking at specifically the buildings and the architecture and how the angles themselves and the and the facades and the and the way they're constructed um, act upon the residents who live underneath them and within them. And that one I'm also thinking a lot about waste and waste studies and how waste um, manifests in, in the global south, both on the tropical island space, right? You have the plastic washing up on the sort of utopic island beach, um, and also just as sites of, of waste dumping. Um, and so looking at that more specifically. And then four, this is the chapter I worked on for the OHC term. And this is called sensorial subversion, sex workers and subaltern bodies. And here I'm really looking at how the sensorial realm allows subaltern bodies to access privileged goods and spaces, um, opening up a space of erotic agency. Yet the exchange of bodies for capital reinforces the subjugation of women. It's a deeply unequal transaction. So how can we talk about agency and sex work without also acknowledging that the conditions that lead to sex work are conditions that subjugate women? And so I'm, I keep arriving back at this question about how can I talk about these things while valorizing agency, but not glorifying the victimization of women. So it's it's tricky and I have not come to a, a conclusion <laughs> in this process. So I will perhaps ask you um, in the audience for some, some feedback on that. So in chapter four, I'm talking about sex work and agency and I wanna read this quote by Amia Srinivasan in her book, The Right to Sex. I just read this book. And it ended up being really helpful for this chapter. I found it sort of by accident reading the New York Times one morning and ordered it and it ended up being perfect for what I needed. And so she's talking about this idea that all that matters is consent. And so she said, yet it would be disingenuous to make nothing of the convergence between sex positivity and liberalism and their shared reluctance to interrogate the formation of our desires. Third wave feminists are right to say, for example, that sex work is work and can be better work than menial labor undertaken by most women. And they are right to say that what sex workers need are legal and material protections, safety and security, not rescue or rehabilitation. But to understand what sort of work sex work is, just what physical and psychical acts are being bought and sold and why it is overwhelmingly women who do it and overwhelmingly men who pay for it, surely we have something to say about the political formation of male desire. And so the question that she's asking is that if we say all we need is consent and whatever goes between consenting adults is fine, 
and we should support that, then what about what forms the desires that we're consenting to? And I think it's a really important question. And she frames it in a way that I find very readable and accessible. So to continue. So each work begins with an analysis of a work of art um, by Nalini Malani. And I wish um, Myra Botaro was here. She's a former member of my committee and it was she who suggested this artist in the beginning. And I really find the visual representation of the thematic elements of my dissertation to be helpful. And it was a, a wonderful suggestion on her part. And so I'll start with uh, some stills from her 1973 film. Now, this was 1973 in India, so it was quite, if not shocking, just very, very transgressive of, of the sort of norms of, of Indian society at the time. And so this is, a, these are stills of a woman in her, this is her third film in black and white. And so it really sort of goes against the taboos that re regulate female sexuality and masturbation specifically. And so it shows this woman, she's, wearing black on white. She has a white bed sheet. And Milani picked specifically um, a woman who had dealt with epilepsy because she wanted her movements to conjure more than just sexual excitement, but also sort of like a hysteria that she's um, sort of using in this film to, to demonstrate a, sort of a legitimate manner of, of protest or sort of um, expression of sort of female agency that she uses in this film. Now, I picked this particular film as the start of this chapter because I think it is just a good representation of sort of some of the themes that the chapter really tries to get into. Um, and so, and Milani, she's critiquing all of her works in general. They critique her native India, but they also go outward. And so, although she's critiquing the sort of patriarchal traditional Hindu society, she's also looking outward towards Western societies that sort of purport to give women more freedom, but simultaneously reinforce the same patriarchy that subjugates them. So in both Devi and Pia Mutu's novels, and I'm gonna start with those two, Eve de Cédé Combre and Benares. You know, those are the two that are the first part of the chapter, second part of the chapter looks at Aphana and another work of Devi's. Um, and so, Sex work occupies a space of ambivalence and contradiction. It pushes against traditional feminine roles of wife, mother, sister, daughter, but it also reinforces this sexual subservience, um, often to a male, sometimes female. Term. So the ambiguity of sex work is reproduced textually in both novels, especially evident in the unexplained questions unfinished endings and ambiguous images that close both novels. And so what I find in this, in the first text, in Devi's text, in Eve de Cédé Combre, is that Eve's body specifically emblematizes, emblematizes this contradiction. So she is at once boyishly anti-feminine and hypersexualized. So she's sculptée comme une roche basaltique. So she's, on the one hand, she's sculpted like this basalt rock, like of the island with the island. 
And Amelina Damli, she uses Deleuze and Guattari's nomadism along with subsequent feminist interpretations to read Devi's work. And she says that she collapses categories of sexual difference with her portrayal of Eve. And so Eve, whose body is circulated with the consumerist patriarchal world she inhabits, seems to evade the imposition of confinement through the appropriation of violence inflicted upon her. So on the one hand, Eve has these chapters that are written in her own voice, where she casts herself as the predator, not prey, where she talks about herself as using sex work to, to as a means to an end that she is in control of. And then the other part of the book is written in this italicized voice, who we think may be Eve's subconscious, maybe not, but that's where Davy talks about the trauma that she experiences. And so on the one hand, she is this fragile, they call her a skeleton. Um, and on the other hand, she's made from this basalt island rock. Um, she doesn't fit the sort of idea of a voluptuous courtesan either. She's described as boyish, like as boyish. She's um, she talks about herself, herself as being nothing like a woman. In the first scene that we were in which she talks about sex work, we witness um, her first encounter, and it's profoundly uncomfortable. Um, she's a child. She's not even. I think she's eleven. And so, this assault of the boy's touch makes the reader profoundly uncomfortable and a witness to trauma and rape. And then even at 17, the age of her, that she is in the novel, and she retains the skeletal build. Um, but she's not just fragile, despite her slenderness. Um, Devi talks about her encore si fragile, si maigre, si cassable. So she's so fragile, so thin, so breakable, but it has a surface de pierre. She has a surface of rock and metal au coeur. And so she's got metal in her heart and her body becomes this weapon that she deploys throughout the text. And despite words like transparent, reflet, echo, as we saw, her body is grounded in the island, firmly planted. And so although Davy uses Eve's voice to insist on her empowerment, she also has this other voice that's insisting on the trauma that continues to happen as a result of her sex work. So there's both things happening at the same time. She's Escaping the fate of some of the other women described in the book who ruin their eyesight at the garment factory and end up being left as nothing more than trash and are unable to escape. So she has some level of agency because of her work, but it's also incredibly traumatic for her and something that Devi continues to explore throughout the narrative. Now, in on the other hand, the author really uses sex work only as a way to talk about the experience of diaspora and the experience of sort of the trauma of remembering and the experience of post-colonial poverty that happened after the collapse of these certain industries. So he never looks at sex work in and of itself or at what might happen to the women who perform it. So here instead, you have, okay, is this symbolic sex work. And the novel here looks at how young men go to the capital city of Port-Louis to find female sex workers for the evening. Um, and the novel follows their search and then they finally run into these young women. And here instead of, there's no physical description of these women. 
the only descriptions we really have are of their expressions and of their and a lot goes into talking throughout this work and much differently from Davy's work there's no descriptions of their bodies i think that piamutu is specifically does not describe bodies for that for, for in order to sort of derail the sex work transaction or to do what's unexpected for the reader but what he doesn't do is interrogate the idea the the way that male desire is formulated in the book he does not wonder or ask why do these men go to the capital city and, and it's almost explained as a sort of natural even innocent um, voyage of self-discovery that they go and they find these women and that's completely normal and so it's, he's using the sex work transaction to describe something but he's not looking at the experience that the women have um, and so and so I want to come back to Srinivasan's book The Right to Sex because she again she fiercely defends the right of sex workers to better wages and legal protections while also recognizing the power differential of exploitation and subjugation that facilitates sex work, stating, so long as women need money to pay their bills and feed their children, so long as sex work is better than available alternatives, and so long as women's subordination is eroticized, there will be prostitution. And so this is where Piamutu's novel falls short. So nowhere in his narrative does he interrogate the premise that is completely natural, even healthy, that his protagonists go to the capital city, sex work is largely largely symbolic and he sort of glosses over trauma and service of an anti-globalist story of remembering and connection and uh, i think i feel like i'm running toward the end of yeah. end of you, time you should take your papers off I think oh gosh okay thank you all right I like a good place to put them. all right <laughs> so um I think what I want to do is I'm going to it's it's there's a lot in this chapter so I'm going to skip through and not go into the other two books because it's a lot um, and just focus on on Divi and Piamutu and this specific idea of sex work because throughout the chapter I move from sex work to then Bichdi who is a Dalit or untouchable servant in India and how she uses her body in this very transgressive manner and breaks all of these taboos and then I finish with a story about an indentured woman in Maurice in the 19th century who because of her high caste ends up being the victim of, of rape um, and it's because of her caste that this happens to her and then you have Bijdi who because of her lower caste is able to sort of transgress certain norms so I come back to this idea of sort of sexual empowerment versus sexual exploitation and violence. Um, and so the, the the chapter sort of follows this idea, this arc from sex work to sexual transgression and then back to sexual violence. And so I think I'll just conclude with the end, which is the question that I want to leave you with. Okay. And so in all of these, in all of these, despite the character's best efforts, um, there are limits to what erotic agent, agency can, can achieve, um, just like there are limits to how effective it could be to um, sort of subvert the exchange of capitalism while living under capitalism. Or I think about Sunil Anyani and how 
his book, he's talking about the limits of colonial enlightenment. So what, what can you, what are the limits of thinkers during this time, right? They may have been profoundly anti-colonial, but they're limited by sort of where they were and the systems under which they were living. And so erotic agency then would owe by the patriarchy in which it's conceived. So if these women do have agency, what they're able to do or not do is fundamentally limited by the space in which they live. And so how can I talk about these things without, I just wanna be really careful not to try to valorize something that is also traumatic. And I, and I asked this from like a concrete example as well. I have a, a friend I grew up with who is a sex worker and I know her history and I think of it as something that's a result of trauma, right? And something that is negative to a certain extent. Yet when she talks about it, she wants recognition of her work and of what she does and of the sort of of the agency that she says that she she is making a choice and it's a lifestyle and wants recognition as And so it's the same question that I'm coming up against in my chapter. Um, so I think I'll leave it there. I, I had more to say, and I'm a little bit, uh, <laughs> I have to say a little bit distracted by the format and uh, my, my papers and, and not seeing my screen sharing notes. So I apologize for, for some of the, um, maybe not, not getting all of what I wanted to say out, but I really appreciate everyone for being here. And I'd love to hear some questions um, from, from anyone, if there are any. Thanks so much, Sheila, for that really uh, interesting and suggestive description of your dissertation project, in particular of your fourth chapter. Again, I would invite anyone who has questions in our audience at home to type them into the chat, and then I will share them with Sheila. And um, let me, I'll start by asking, I have a couple of questions I can ask myself. First, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your archive. Um, the title of the dissertation and most of what you talked about were uh, novels. Mm -hmm. Um, but you also indicated that you have these, you begin these, uh, 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 some of the chapters uh, looking at some visual materials and you showed us um, the stills from uh, Milani's film. And then in your description of the third chapter, um, repurposing the remains of failed industry, um, it's clear that you, you, you use novels there too, but I'm also interested in whether you drawn other other kinds of archival materials because what you're we seem to be interested in there is is something that's not simply literary but also cultural. So tell us a little bit about the the variety of materials that the whole project undertakes or takes on and also about sort of the way you're moving methodologically between these different kinds of materials. Any questions? Okay, um, so mostly I am dealing with novels, though each chapter deals with a specific set of novels, but I am looking at the work of Milani as sort of a, a visual representation of the themes. And her work, it varies. There's film, um, she does paintings, she does a lot of installations. Um, and a lot of it's very, there's a lot of material, a lot of different sorts of media that she uses. And so I'm looking at, at that, I'm looking at novels in the third chapter. I don't have 
a ton of other archival material. I certainly have texts that I'm looking at. Um, but it it is it, it is mostly literature. I will say that as much as there's I, I'm drawing from other sources, and I think um, a lot of my sort of more theoretical texts are not always around literature. It, it is a literary project, and it's it's really about representation and literature at the end at the end of the day. Peg, what do I need to do to unmute people? It's a very small group, and um, I I think I'm unmuted. Uh, Okay, Fabiana, did I do that for you? Yes, I think, can you hear me? I cannot hear you. Oh, oh right, I've got my, my volume way down. Can, Sheila? Yes, now I can hear you. Sheila, you can hear me too. Thank you, thank you, Sheila, it's wonderful to hear you. Um, and um, it's a great project, there's, you know, it's very rich. Um, I just wanted you to talk a little bit more about you know, when you speak of prostitution um, and you speak of literature, so what we are talking about is really representation, right? It's really choices of authors um, that the authors are making to represent prostitution and what they choose to not represent also. And so in Benares, I think, you know, it's not so much about being judgmental about what the author is not doing, but more about like, what is he choosing to represent? Um, and the same thing with Devi. And you might, I would, like to, I would like to invite you to talk a little more about Devi's work because she is such an unusual um, novelist in what she chooses to represent in her work. And what, what I, you know, what I found really important about your presentation. So you just said you work with literature, but you did show us a part of a of a, a teaching book, right? That has representations of those islands. And really, you know, can you speak a little more about what Devi is purposely trying to represent? Um, and especially in regard to prostitution, which is, you know, you had this final quote there, right? The bottom of the bottom. So both in terms of the women themselves and in terms of the work itself, like that's that layer that she is interested in representing. So maybe, you know, kind of um, talking a little more about that would be interesting. And Devi, oh, now it's echoey, sorry, I'll have to. <laughs> Okay, sorry, we have this, the sound gets strange when there's multiple uh, unmuting. Um, so Devi represents pur purposefully, purposely sort of the most abject suffering that occurs in humanity. She picks topics that are incredibly difficult to read. In fact, I'm trying to finish that last book that you gave me from which I quote, and I and I read it little by little, but I have to put it down because she talks about pedophilia and she talks about these just really horrific scenes um, she depicts. But what's fascinating about her is her style of writing is so beautiful and it's poetic and it's it's this like this precisely beautiful poetry that's incredibly hard to read because the subject is so difficult. So it's this dissonance between the, the most ugly and the most depraved and the most inhumane that can happen with a kind of writing that is just this, this very elevated, very almost like, I mean, she, she's really influenced by the classical, the, by the French style, by, by poets. I mean, you can see all of these different literary, um, literary references in her, in her writing. It's very metaphorical. It's very 
there's all of this meta stuff happening in her in her work from other works. Um, and so if you read her of her of together, you sort of can pick up little pieces from from other books that that will show up and characters that will show up and you're never quite sure who's writing and if the character herself is writing or if it's the author she does a lot of going back and forth where you don't know whose perspective it is. Um, but Debbie's she's critiquing she's critiquing systems around the world different governments she's critiquing India she's critiquing the way that the politics is happening the um, the current the current leader as well as. Um, I mean, she takes Amit Gandhi in that book too, right? She talks about his sort of uh, the untalked about aspect of his Hinduism that, I mean, we would think of as verging on pedophilia now. So she's really, she really takes all of the taboos and she just explodes them and she, and she rips them open and she wants them there for you to read. And so, yes, I think her choice of prostitution and sex work is to illustrate that this, this kind of existence that's on the margins, that's incredibly, um, that just this sort of this ultimate um state of objection sort of objection sorry not objection so and i think that's that that is what she does with with her with her writing um and fabian i, I forget their other part that you asked me but just to talk more about <laughs> debbie's writing i uh i was gonna Okay, I had a question if I don't know, can I cop in? <laughs> um, yeah, so I was curious, I come from environmental studies, um, but thank you so much for your talk. And so um, I was curious, I would love to hear more um, if you could speak about kind of like how climate came in, because I know, right, um, how much that islands in particular, right, are threatened, right, with sea level rise, like many islands are just they're going to be gone entirely, right? Um, and so I'm just curious to see kind of like how that sort of developed in your work um, and where it appeared. And I know you kind of mentioned, right, that it sort of, some of it came kind of unexpectedly um, as you began it. So I would just love to hear you sort of talk about that a little bit more. So I think it, it first entered in because of a, a scene in one of my, in one of Debbie's works actually about this particular neighborhood on the Ile Maurice, which is Mauritius in English. And um, it was a neighborhood that's full of abandoned sites and there's trash and um, there are all of these representations of sort of living in filth. And then, oh, another another novel by Apana where it was a migrant camp, um, same thing with, with all of this just really squalid conditions. And then that sort of juxtaposed with these pristine beaches and, and the beautiful blue sky. And then also the scenes when there's plastic that washes up. Um, and so sort of just, it, it came about because of what was actually in, in the books and the literary representations. But then sort of in the world, I started thinking about it more when there was an oil spill off the coast of Mauritius not too long ago. And it was something that briefly made the news in the US and then sort of disappeared. And I don't actually know what the extent of the damage was. I think they did a relatively good job of cleaning it up, but it was a, it was an oil tanker and it wasn't going to Mauritius, it was going somewhere else. So it was bringing oil from a 
place that produces oil to a region that uses oil. So probably somewhere in the West. And so just the idea, that's the other thing about the Indian Ocean is that it's always been a site of, of, um, of, of trade and transfer, right? Ships would go by the islands, bringing and taking things. And so the idea of this oil spill off the coast of this, one of the most pristine coral reefs that's left, but you know, on, from coming from, I think, I think it was coming from Japan and then going to, I think the Western hemisphere coming, coming across, but that it, you know, where it derailed was on this island. It just, it just sort of started the train of thought of thinking about um, the environmental consequences to, to smaller spaces. And then just the, the big disasters, hurricanes. I mean, it, the island has always been a site of storms and Fabienne could speak to this, right? All of the, the literature around sea, um, traveling by sea, and, and weather and all of these things. So that's always been part of sort of the island literature. But then when you couple that with extreme events that are happening now and the extreme storms and the idea that it's not just disaster, but the actual existence itself of the space that is now threatened, as you said, it just seemed like such a, such a fundamentally important part of, of these island narratives. And I think I see it more and more, not in everything that's in my dissertation, but the, the more current literature that I read seems to have more and more to do with this idea of sort of existential destruction. Um, that, that's, that's kind of omnipresent. So I believe I have now made it possible for anyone to speak. And um, I, we've got a couple of people that have asked questions in the chat. I, I know that Fabienne wants to finish up, but I've also got questions from Jason Lester and from Leia, and you guys can fight it out. I don't care who goes first. Please, please go ahead. Um, oh, why don't you I'll turn up your volume? Hold on, Fabian. Turn, oh, turn up your volume on your computer so that oh, you okay. can hear what they say. Okay. Uh, do you have to my settings to No. No, you can oh, do it right here. Yep. Oh, I Did you do it? So try now, Fabian. No, I just, um, I want to hear Leah's question and Jason's question. So I'll come back to it if we have time. I'm actually in quite a noisy environment. Paul, would you mind um, reading my question for me, please? Happy to do it, happy to do it. Um, oops, I turned mine. Okay, I'm, I'm, uh, Leah wants to know, I'm interested in the classroom experience with students. Do you find that they appreciate the opportunity to reflect critically on the textbook? Is there resistance? Have your discussions revealed new dimensions of the representation of islands, colonialism, tourist fantasies that you had not thought of before? Yes, and thank you for asking that question about teaching. I feel like I can I can really answer this <laughs> with less less difficulty sometimes. Um, yes, my students are really interested in in thinking about the textbook and, and what's represented. So we did we did a whole lesson on the Indian Ocean. I actually used this textbook. And the first question was, was that question, why do you think that islands are associated with the Indian Ocean? And then we went into why um, the European countries were represented with museums, et cetera. And they had great feedback. Um, and then we actually read a poem by Karl Tohagudi, which is hard. It is such a hard poem, so hard, I would think, for grad students, too. And I did it with much younger students. And we went line by line. And it's a poem about the experience of coolitude. And he talks about um, 
there's, I wish I, I could remember the poem by heart. I wish we still did that where we could recite them. Um, <laughs> like uh, the old fashioned sort of uh, reciting of poetry. I would love to do that. But um, there are these lines where he talks about the, the, the ocean voyage of coulis, les, les petits coulis, les petits esclaves. And at the end, they brise cette bouteille. They, they break this bottle over the, the heads of, this, of these young, these small coulis and small esclaves. Um, but it was it was this really symbolic poem, and my students, after having talked about the Indian Ocean and this region, and then reading the poetry, they had these amazing interpretations, um, all about sort of how the sea could represent freedom, how it could represent foreclosure, and and these are and you know this is in the words of, of younger students, and this was not me sort of eliciting these responses, but with enough time, and then, and I think they the the idea of criticizing what they're used to criticizing a textbook was new for them too. the idea that the textbook itself was something to be questioned. I think that often, you know, you bring in literature, you bring in something else and that's the activity, but rarely do we sit down and say like, what are the pedagogical materials that we're using and why are we using them? Where are they published? Who is making them? Um, what is it teaching you? And so I think for some students, it becomes this kind of almost a completely new activity that they've never done before. And then they start reflecting on that. And that's a really, really fun thing to do. And just doing poetry with poetry in French where they're like, oh my God, I can't read this. This is crazy. Why are you giving it to me? And then going word by word, line by line. And then they start to, to start to see it. And then they can make the connections. They can make the connections between the experience of being in the US and, 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 and sort of the experience of race now and what they're seeing. And they can relate that back. And, and it's been really great. <laughs> Uh, Jason, do you want to ask your question yourself, or would you like me to do it? You can just give me a thumbs up if you want me to read it, or you can speak. Yeah, I can. I can probably uh, read it here. And, oh, and to, to just tack on to um, uh, what, what we were saying uh, is is that um, I'm sorry, Sheila, is that right? I, I'm getting your name corrected. Um, yeah, I, I think that is an interesting moment where you have uh, a text that you give students and you then have them look at it maybe without any kind of prompting and they assume that one, they're supposed to use that as a model or perspective to understand whatever primary text you're using. And then if you ask them to then interrogate that secondary text, you know, it's that second level of them thinking back uh, metatextually upon uh, what it is they're they're using to to understand and how or whether this perspective is is the is effective and what's it's revealing and so forth. So I I, I find that kind of uh, very helpful with students and also sort of uh, you know always a little tricky to effectively scaffold and so forth. Uh, I just wanted to say real fast you you mentioned um, uh, asking for any uh, possible. Uh, interlocutors or, or or theorists that could help you with um, some of your chapters. I thought your first chapter reminded me of having resonances with Derrida's concept of ontology, and uh, particularly the way that ontology has been taken up by uh, Elizabeth Freeman, for example, in Time Binds, um, which is, I would say, queer studies, gender studies. Um, and I, I think there's ways it, it could be fruitfully applicable uh, to your project. It's also been used in um, South American film and, and so forth. Uh, and um, also uh, Tina Sika's uh, recent uh, monograph, Sex, Consent and Justice, a New Feminist Framework could also be uh, a useful interlocutor for some of those um, 
difficulties you're, you're talking about with the fourth chapter. Um, you know, I, that, that concept of how one is um, limited and uh, becomes a subject or subjected to outside forces, but then one finds pleasure or subversion within that, you know, and the way that we parse those, those elements. I mean, that's also kind of a, a, uh, a, a continuing discussion between gender studies and feminist studies, queer studies and so forth, and the way that those different fields have developed. So I, I think that text could also be helpful for you to, to kind of uh, think through uh, uh, or drama, it helps dramatize some of these questions you talked about in your presentation. Thank you. I was going to tell you. Oh, sorry, sorry, we're having echo issues. Um, Derrida is in chapter one, so that was a, a good call on that. The ontology is there. Um, but I thank you for the other suggestions, and I will definitely take take a look. There's always so much to read, and I really appreciate appreciate the, the input. So you stay stay unmuted. Don't stay. mute yourself. Okay. So Fabien, do you want to follow up now? Uh, sure. I guess I it, it was kind of a going back to Katrina's question and just making the point that um, an aspect, of course, of the of the ecological crisis is the migration that it creates, right? And so um, that is definitely represented in the novels, the question of migration um, and how that changes also the occupation of the island. But sort of my larger um, question, maybe Sheila, was to uh, perhaps invite you to give us a little more about um, the relationship with France, right? So this sort of background, uh, contextual background of really what is Mauritius' um, relationship to France? Um, you know, that particular island and then sort of more generally the territories that you examine, if you could just kind of give us a little bit that, that context as you as you see it. Yeah, so um, Mauritius, should I turn this down again? No, you're good, you're good. I'm good? Okay. So in, is it? Um. Okay, <laughs> sorry, we <laughs> the echo again. Um, so Mauritius became independent in 1968 and was once a French colony and a British colony, and then is now in an independent country. Mayotte, for, on, by contrast, which is also in the Indian Ocean, and Réunion are both still département d'outre-mer, so they're both still part of France, and so subject to you know, the French, the French are you know, in control and they're French citizens. So the migration that happens to Mayotte specifically is in an attempt to get to French soil. That's why it's happening there and not to other islands and not to Mauritius or to, to, to other places. So it's, it's really similar in many ways to the, the migrant crisis we've seen in the Mediterranean and other places. So it's people trying to get um, to, to European soil. Um, but then the relationships are, are complicated. The, the Mayotte, these, these are islands that have strategic importance to the French government. There's, um, there's issues around oil, there's issues around all sorts of other sort of resources. Um, and then the other places that I'm looking at in the Caribbean, Martinique is still a département d'outre-mer. I'm not sure if I'm looking at Martinique. Well, I'm looking at Guadeloupe with um, Condé, which is another island that had um, a lot of migration from Indian indentured laborers as well. So it has a similar, well, it's not, it, it's quite different, but it has somewhat similar ethnic makeup. Um, so looking at regions that were either once French colonies and have become independent or continue to be département, um, which is a complicated relationship, right? Because it's not, 
it's technically part of the country, but but not with all of the same rights and privileges, certainly. Um, and Mayotte is the the poorest part of of of, of France, technically, right? It's the it's the poorest region because it's a département. Um, and yeah, that that is important to to specify. So these are all places um, that have sort of different geopolitical situations at the moment. So. So Natalie, I just wanted to give you the opportunity. I know you sort of asked a question and then you you uh, backed off. Do you have a question that you'd like to share? Oh yeah, uh, hi everyone. Um, and thank you, Sheila, it's such a great project. And I think the, the way you talk about it and conceive it is so exciting and, and broad reaching. Um, that's just wonderful. Um, if it's all right, I know we don't have a lot of time, but you've, I was wondering if you could just say a little bit more of what might call, you know, the one might call the aesthetics where the, you know, the aesthetics meet the ethics and the representational. I know Fabian asked a question that touched upon it. Um, and certainly in your presentation, you gave some brief examples, but um, if, if you wish, could you say a little bit more about how a particular uh, language or style or use of language um, sort of uh, weaves um, weaves into also um, these um, incredibly complex and difficult topics that are at the heart of your project. Yeah, and that and that's a pretty important element, I think, of this project and one that I haven't really talked about in this presentation and really need to develop further in the dissertation itself, because I'm talking about these really particular writers and really particular writing styles. I mean, I have Duras, right, in this, in the corpus and just by herself trying to figure out how to describe her writing and what she's doing. I mean, that could be an entire project. So every time, and this is probably why I haven't gone back to chapter two, is every time I get into her work, I'm like, I don't even know where to go with this. But I mean, she is so, her, her writing is so, I mean, so it's, it's really actually difficult, right? It's difficult to read in some ways and it's so symbolic and it has all of these sort of, um, representations of, 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 of various places and um, and a narrative that doesn't always make a lot of sense and a speaker who you can't understand who it is and speakers who go into each other. And I mean, she does, of course, she's the, the, the nouveau roman. Um, she's, she's well known for, for her style. And so that is a part of the dissertation. And, and the way that she does that, I think, is, is the way that she does critique um, Colonialism. I think that that part of part of her style, and it's not something that's examined as well in her work, because when we talk about her in nouveau roman, it's usually in a whole sort of different different direction. But I think that part of what she's doing with language and the vague usage of it, I think, actually is part of her critique, like the linguistic way that she does it. Um, and I think I would have to find a more specific example to illustrate that. But I know in my first chapter, um, when she's talking about the in the vice consul. Um, and she's using language in a way that really critiques the, the the status of the diplomat, right? And so she's and just the way that she actually forms her phrases and uses language itself, and the choice of words is sort of this rep is 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 really it's um it, it sort of enacts or her language enacts what what the violence of the of diplomacy looked like. So her her language itself is is sort of expresses this violence, and then Divi, who I talked about a little bit more, her just this the, the beauty that is is just so dissonant with the subject matter, I think is, is, is like so the most striking thing about her writing. I don't know if, if any of you have read her, her work, but I mean, she goes from everything. She, she talks about um, 
deformity, a lot about a lot about people who who suffer from various deformities and and, and being like, and just in these really difficult, difficult topics. Um, and and I and I wonder with her writing, like I don't, it's she's someone I'd like to talk to because I don't know where you just wonder sometimes where all of this this comes from because she really does pick the most difficult of subjects. And then Apana has a, a completely different style. It's 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 much more. It's it's very clear. It's I would say it's kind of realist. Um, the way that she just that uses language, it's it's just very different. Um, and then PM Mututu com completely different. So and there's so much to say there. And I and I feel like I could do better service to that question with um, some more time and maybe some more textual examples to to give you and and provide translations for. That's great. Thank you, Sheila. And I'll be seeing you. Well, later. everyone, we've we're a little bit past uh, one o'clock. Um, thank you all for joining us, and thank you uh, especially for um, uh, your tolerance of our um, managing the realities of the hybrid context. Um, thank you very much, Sheila Hajivasalu, for this really interesting talk. It's been a total pleasure. Um, have a great break, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye-bye. Good job, Sheila. <laughs>